and thanks for listening to the Adulting is Easy podcast, where we make adulting easier by making money easier. This is your host, Lauren, and I'm joined today by Brad Freeman, an independent equity analyst who runs Stock Market Nerd. Brad started out working at an RIA and wrote for The Motley Fool before going out on his own. He covers a wide range of stocks within traditional growth and value buckets, as well as macroeconomics. Equity research is a passion of Brad's, and leaving no stone unturned is a prerequisite for his stock picking. Thanks for joining me, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, me too. And our goal is to make adulting easier for listeners by discussing a personal finance topic since managing money is a big part of adulting. So Brad, naturally, given your bio, we're going to talk about stocks. And I I always ask this question when I bring somebody on who's into equities, what is a stock? Sure. So it's it's uh, simply put, um, a, a common currency uh, or, or currency for how um, a, a company or, or a company will present themselves to the public and offer very tiny pieces of, of their overall ownership um, to Joe Schmo like me. Um, so um, thank you um, for, for public markets for making that happen. But but yeah, that is that is the essence of what a stock is, just tiny uh, slivers of ownership in overall companies. In why, a do you, currency. why do you love stocks so much? Sure. I, I love stocks because um, because of the, the the potential profit structure that that they, that they provide. So, um, I mean, I played baseball growing up. So it, it was always if you fail seventy percent of the time, you're going to be in the Hall of Fame, and everyone's going to love you. And um, investing is it's it's a similar idea. Hopefully, you'll bat a little better than than three hundred. Um, but but with the with the finite potential downside, so the most you can lose is one hundred percent. An infinite potential upside where there is no cap to how much you can you can make when you're actually right on a company. Um, you can be wrong a lot um, and still be very successful. And and I'm wrong a lot in, in many in many facets of my life. So um, um, so and with a major caveat being uh, diversification is is the only way that 100% downside doesn't mean 100% of your money is gone. Um, but but the freedom to be wrong a lot um, is, is is very liberating. And um, and, and knowing that if I'm right um, a certain portion of the time, that being incorrect is is wrong or being incorrect is okay. And and the other uh, facet is. Um, so run stock market nerd. So I, I am definitely a nerd um, and I love learning about companies. So it, it really allows me to be a generalist. So I, I, I religiously follow a company that are not, not maybe religiously is a bad word right now, but I passionately follow a company that, um, that, uh, that covers fertility benefits and, and one, and one in called CrowdStrike, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know that covers endpoint security and another in programmatic advertising. So it's, it's diving into all these investment cases and becoming, informed on all these kind of cool aspects of my life that are aspects of the world that I never really thought I'd, I'd understand, um, and, and learning from people who are experts, um, and, and getting a, a tiny, uh, a tiny percent closer to being an expert, but always striving to become that and knowing I never truly will be. Um, it's, it's fun. It, it's putting together a puzzle and, and I like puzzles. <laughs> so. so if there's a stock that you become interested in, how are you actually analyzing this company? Yeah. So it's, um, candidly put, it's, it's a, the process is a, is a little obsessive for me. So, um, the way I can, I can go to sleep at night and, and, and know that, um, I'm, I'm very comfortable owning what are some high volatility, high beta stocks, or uh, sorry for the buzzword, high volatility and high beta are the same thing. So I just wanted to sound smart. Um, but, um, it, it's really reading all the filings and, and, and listening to all the investor conferences taking a month or two really, um, to, to dive into all the publicly available information um, and, 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 and su- um, supplementing that with um, interviews from people I know who are in the field, or there's a couple of great services, uh, Tagus and um, AlphaStream, who have expert interviews from 
um, from employees who no longer work at the company, which can, as you might, as you might um, think, give you a more candid and objective view uh, of actual prospects and risks. So um, it, it is, as you said in the bio, it's leaving no stone unturned. It's learning everything that I can about the business model and the industry and the company um, so that I know if a stock drops 20%, um, I'm not going to freak out and, and I'm going to understand maybe why it's happening and, and understand if that reasoning is a reason to lean in or lean away. And it just, um, knowledge is power, I, I think, and knowledge is comfort and, and knowledge is tranquility um, within the world of investing. And, and so I seek knowledge um, wherever I can find it. Um, Interesting. So I guess kind of the elephant in the room of investing is like most people that try to pick stocks or trade often underperform the market, underperform indexes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think stock picking is, it really is um, a full-time job. And what I try to do in the newsletter is take everything you you would have to go seek out yourself in a full-time job and kind of condense it down into 10 or 20 minutes so that you're, you're kept fully in the loop in a more expeditious manner. Um, but outperforming is extremely hard. And, and if you want to do this casually, if you have another full-time job or maybe a bunch of kids that you have to look after all day, every day, there's there's nothing wrong with an, an index fund. And that's probably the better decision for most people. If you, if you cannot, um, I, 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 for lack of a better term, obsessively, or, or maybe a better term would be in a very highly disciplined manner, track these companies and learn everything that is coming out and developing about their stories, um, you probably will under underperform. It, it really takes um, consistent dedication to understanding these companies because uh, a lot of the people in, investing in the stock market are not doing the work um, to to learn everything, and, and that's that's really where you can get can get your edge or, or, or mine your edge by um, going a step further and, and paying more attention to detail and uncovering those stones that people are um, maybe not having the time or motivation to uncover. But it takes that. I, I truly believe that. And, and if you're not willing, um, that's completely fine. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with building wealth through triple Qs or, or VOO or one of these other great. Um, index funds that 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 can that that can build you wealth over time. So uh, it, it really has to be uh, a consistent dedication or a great plan B in my mind in index funds, which are never going to fail or, or shouldn't fail. If, if they're failing, we'll probably be focused on different things besides our stocks. So, right, yeah. Then the like entire world is also <laughs> collapsing, and we have right. bigger things to worry about, like the apocalypse. Um, yeah. So. I've heard of people that have like maybe primarily index funds and they take 10% of their portfolio and that's where they pick stocks. What do you think about that approach? I think that I'm going to um, embrace that approach as I, as I get older. So I think important context for your listeners is that I'm, I'm 26. Uh, I have no kids. Um, I, I take, I take girls out on very cheap dates. <laughs> and, and so um, I, I really don't have a lot of financial responsibility outside of myself which kind of emboldens me to take more risk and, and seek more upside um, in, in that compelling risk reward framework. So um, as I get older, as I have um, un ungrateful um, children to, to, to spend all my money, <laughs> and I'm completely kidding um, because kid, um, Elon Musk will, will tell you that kids are important, but that's a conversation for another day, but it will shift. I, I will seek out um, more stable asset classes like, like um, dividend or growth, growth dividend stocks or real estate, which which I know your, your company and organization does a great job of educating listeners about. Um, so it, it really is a, it's a byproduct of where I am in my life right now. Um, and as I get older, it won't be a hundred percent of uh, my, my net worth exposed to single stocks. It will be 90 and then 80 and then 70 and then 60 and then so on. Um, so I, I, I truly believe that 
your circumstances should dictate um, your approach and, and your available time should dictate your approach. And right now I have the luxury of being able to be very selfish in my life right now um, and, and spend all of my time on myself. So, <laughs> oh, that is a luxury, isn't it? <laughs> so how many, let's say you were just for the sake of argument, going to have a portfolio that truly was just individual stocks. How many stocks would you consider to be diversified? Sure. Um, so going back to the idea of, I have to know everything. It's hard to know everything when you're owning 40 or 50 stocks. Um, so for me, I, I own 18. Um, it's gone. It's, it's it kind of has cycled between 15 and 25. Um, but right around 20 is, is, is a good balance. I've found for me personally, where I feel like I'm diversified, where I feel like I can sort of emulate the qualities that an index fund is supposed to provide, where if there's a straggler or a loser in it, it's not going to kill me. It's not going to kind of overly ruin my performance. Um, but to me, over diversifying, uh, in, in my mind, my 15th best idea is going to be a lot better than my 40th best idea. <laughs> um, so uh, not not going crazy with the diversification, um, but again, not not allocating all of my money into this in this new company that I'm really excited about because everyone says it's going to go up uh, because that really is a recipe to um, not only lose a lot of money, but to kind of discourage yourself from participating in index funds or single stocks in the future, which are just phenomenal wealth builders if, if you zoom out far enough over time. What I always think about is the Dow, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's 30 stocks and someone somewhere decided that was a good representation of the entire stock market. And I'm like, well, that, if that should probably be enough, right? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong at all with 30. Um, just to me, I, I really am a weirdo when it comes to, I have to read this, this, this out, out of, out of nowhere article about this company that, that, um, that no, that I don't know. I, I, every stone has to be unturned, just not, not to sound redundant, but um, that, that, uh, for me has kind of gradually pushed it down towards 20. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean about 30 is like anything beyond that. I think we're like splitting hairs. Like it's gotta be 30 or, or, or less, I would think. Um, and 20 seems like a fine number to me. So with stock market nerd and Brad Freeman's portfolio, do those line up? Like what you talk about stock market nerd, are these like truly things that you are owning or just watching? Or do you also talk about when you divest of something? Yeah. So um, the, the two parts of the newsletter are definitely it's equity research and then it's portfolio management. And um, for for me, it's it's always important to say that I will give my readers everything that I'm doing. I'll tell them exactly why I'm doing everything um, with intricate reasoning. And then I'll tell them, think for yourself and go make a decision that's good for you. Um, so I will tell them when I'm selling something, when I'm buying something. Um, at the bottom of every weekly article I write, there's a screenshot of my portfolio showing you exactly what I own. Um, and that really does dictate a lot of the coverage. Uh, now I know that a lot of readers uh, love to learn about Tesla and Microsoft and, and Google and Visa and, and some of these other bellwethers that I don't have in the portfolio. So I will expand the coverage to um, those those high profile names in the growth world. It's it's like a, a Snowflake or, or a Zscaler that aren't in the portfolio, but I know there's so much interest in um, but I, I always consistently cover my own holdings and then we'll kind of uh, seek out two or three high profile stories from around markets and, 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 and cover those as well. Do you mind if I ask you about a time where you were like wrong? Oh, no. A company? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, whew, there's, there's, there's been many instances. <laughs> well, we, well, you, we opened up talking about baseball, so there's going to be right, some instances right. of being wrong, right? So we yeah. did that. 
I'd say um, I'd go with Teladoc. Um, I was definitely sucked into that um, really attractive looking 2021 mega merger uh, between them and a company called Livongo um, and, and really bought into this uh, holistic care. Uh, we're differentiating ourselves versus point solutions because we do more um, selling point. Um, and, and really, I, I think the lesson is uh, kind of like when you're listening, when you're reading filings and, 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 and learning from managers um, about how a company is going to perform in prospects, uh, the synergies and, and the, the vision sold um, with transformative large scale M&A is, is very rarely actually realized, especially for non-profitable companies that, that are burning cash and, 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 and diluting shareholders as aggressively as they are with a merger like this one. Um, so in, in my, in my mind that the, the two takeaways were, uh, avoid transformative M&A for the most part, there are instances where it works extremely well and private, mainly in private markets with rollups, um, is when it will work well. And that transformative is like a hundred million dollar company merging with a $50 million company, which is still gigantic, but in, in the world where I operate, it's, it's a lot smaller. Um, so that was one of the takeaways and, and. The other takeaway was uh, cash flow is king um, and, and valuation doesn't matter. So I, I was born in this or my career was born in this 2019, 2020 uh, framework where uh, money is free. Um, we're handing out checks to everybody. Uh, cash is just sloshing around in everyone's pocket and 20 times sales is a normal part of the dialogue. Um, so definitely got sucked into that. Um, and it was, it was a hard lesson and a good lesson. Um, not maybe not trusting uh managers and, and, and C-suites uh, at hundred percent of the time. I mean, obviously you want, you want to invest in companies where you can take them for their word, but they just have a natural incentive to sell this um, and, and to make it seem like it's maybe a better idea than it actually is. Um, so transformative M&A um, is, is usually something that I will shy away from. Um, and now um, there, I have a rule where transformative M&A with, with companies that are not making money um, that cannot replace the debt that they're servicing for this, um, for the, for this transaction or, uh, can maybe buy back shares in the future with, when they're diluting shareholders like crazy, um, I, I will avoid. So um, hard lesson with Teladoc for sure, <laughs> but uh, live and you learn, right? And then that was definitely part of that 70% of, of strike. That was that was a, a, a glorious strikeout. <laughs> yeah, so. That wasn't even like a 10 pitch at bat. No, you no, got out, fouled I, I swung off. At, I swung at three curveballs in the dirt. Um, <laughs> and I, was, I was out, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, that's too funny. Um, so being a short-term rental owner, I got to ask you about Airbnb and what you think. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I should be asking you what you think, um, personally <laughs> because I mean, they have this gigantic category, um, mainly to themselves. I mean, there's the verbos of the world, but they're operating at such a smaller scale that the network effect that anyone like yourself or any other host is getting from Airbnb is just so powerful. Uh, but at the same time, um, housing shortages are, are very real. Uh, pr- price inflation associated with housing is, is very real. Um, and there's a, there's a good argument to make that, that Airbnb in some capacity contributes to that. There's an argument to make that it doesn't contribute to that. Um, but it, it doesn't matter where my opinion is um, w- within that um, argument. It matters when um, mayors of Florence, Italy or, or, or Barcelona are, are, are banning new short-term rentals outright or when New York City is making it pretty nearly impossible um, to, to operate your business normally. So um, I've Airbnb is so tough for me because the upside associated with being a dominant market leader and having that verb-based virality within short-term rentals is absolutely mouthwatering. It's, it's fantastic. It's, it's, 
and 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 unlike um, maybe an Uber who has pretty formidable competition in pretty much every single market, Airbnb's competition is just so much smaller than they are. Um, and, and, and that means when you're being regulated in 100,000 100, different cities with dynamic laws, you have deeper pockets to comply and, and to pay for lobbying efforts and, and, and to not, not rely on one market over another um, in an overly aggressive manner. So I love the investment case. And I respect the fact that I, I do not have a lot of experience in real estate and housing, and I have very little idea of, of where the regulatory landscape is going to take this, this market. I mean, going back to Uber, for example, we know what regulation is going to look like in the European Union. We know what it's going to look like in California, which is probably going to be stricter than elsewhere in, in the United States, as it usually is. We don't know anything about Airbnb just because it's been regulated in a piecewise manner from local governments and, and cities doing it all on their own. So will this ever get brought up at a state or federal level? I have no idea. Um, but it, it's that uncertainty that kind of makes me hesitant to make it a core um, a, a core position, a top five position, which is um, why I actually, I, I, it's in the portfolio and I actually sold a little bit of it, 30% of it actually. So not a little bit of it um, last week or the week before or, or earlier in the yeah, month. I saw that. Um, That's why I was asking. Yeah. Um, so it's in the portfolio because, because, the reward associated with this opportunity being allowed to exist is so incredible. Um, but the risk that there is more societal um, motivation and, and drive uh, to regulate this business model than there is for many others. Um, so um, if, if, if governments play ball, then I think uh, hosts like yourself are going to do extremely well and Airbnb is going to do extremely well. And I just have no knowledge or education or experience in understanding how that regulatory landscape is going to unfold. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, going back to the shortage, I think you can't say Airbnb is co- is contributing to a housing shortage across the United States. Are there some areas where that's a problem? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's tourist areas where the people that work at these comp- these businesses that rely on tourism, like the bartenders, the servers, they can't rent locally. And I'm I'm part of the problem in one of my markets because I, I you know, I have a 16 apartment building for short term, two or long term. You know, so I'm theoretically contributing to that problem. Then there's other areas where there were a bunch of second homes that were sitting empty yeah. all the time when people weren't using yeah. them. And now they're on Airbnb. So they're sort of contributing, getting these houses kind of back into the fold, albeit not for long-term housing. And then as far as regulations go, what I like about Florida is in 2011, they passed a law that said, whatever's in, in effect for short-term rentals, that's it. You're okay. done. You've got it. Where I live, there is a six-week minimum stay. And the government basically is like, we would love to change that, but we can't because of Florida's law, right? Versus the other side of it is the ones that had the beneficial housing laws that's great. You want to go operate there because you basically know what you're going to get. Um, there's ways around it with special zonings and things mm-hmm. like that, special, you know, future planning that I've seen. And, you know, can you get it zoned a tourist house? Or if we rezone this area to commercial, then that doesn't apply for here. And so there's a lot of, you know, moving things around and changing regulations, at least locally that I see here. I can't, I can't speak to other states. My thought on Airbnb in general is um, they really really are not kind to hosts at all. Um, It's not unusual for a guest to report a security system as having cameras inside the house or a um, noise monitor as being a camera and them shut down you and all of your listings and not talk to you for weeks and shut down, take down 
all of your bookings, right? So there's a risk there. And that really Sounds makes like people Twitter. mad. It, yeah, exactly. It makes people <laughs> mad and it scares people. And it's not unusual. You see hosts are like, this is it. I'm done. Like I've done this for nine years. I can't do it anymore. I'm going back to long-term rentals. Yeah. And so I don't know what the answer there is because you have a natural balance between guests and hosts. Um, I tend to think that, of course, I'm I'm biased, but I tend to think that they should want the hosts to stay. And I think, you know, the biggest competition for them is guests going to hotels. Um, but I just think Airbnb, it needs to go, it needs to focus on being a little bit different, bigger units for longer stays for becoming like a true local and getting that, getting that view of these different areas rather than being a direct competitor to hotels. Um, but yeah. we'll see if I owned individual stocks, I would not own Airbnb because I just know like they could, they could piss me off in a second, ruin half my business. And I don't want to also be exposed to them in the stock market. If that makes yeah. sense. No, it's fair. And I mean, I, I, I tend to, to be, to like lean towards your, your kind of point of view where they're not in most cases contributing to crazy housing inflation. They're minimizing deadweight loss of things already sitting there and they're extracting more value for local economies from that network effect that they're taking advantage of by creating higher occupancy rates per unit. Uh-huh. But um, I can have those those opinions, and uh, my opinion, unfortunately, does not matter at all. Um, and I think, not to get political, but governments make um, regulatory decisions that don't fix the root of the problem uh, pretty Never. frequently. And and I think there's a scenario in which they make a regulatory fix that doesn't fix this root of the problem. Um, and they're also, I mean, like you said, they're 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 making aggressive moves. Like Brian Chesky in an interview said, we're gonna we're gonna tell hosts to cut their cleaning fees, and it's it's like, well, I I understand that you're trying to drive affordability, but your demand is gonna come from the fact that your supply is is unique and in large scale, and and that's only gonna happen if you, you take good care of hosts. And you can make the argument, I guess, that that means higher occupancy rates, and that means more money overall. But I think that's a tough sell um, for a lot of people. So we're talking about reinventing themselves with getting into experiences and. This is their second time trying to get into experiences and it's the yeah. second time because the first time went so poorly for them. Um, so yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of risk associated with the name right now. Um, and I think more so than there has been in the past. Um, and, and yeah, I, I tend, I tend to, to think that and, and to kind of agree that um, it's, it's better to be a host than an investor in Airbnb right now, but I still see a, a, a scenario where that, where, where it can become a massive company um, an even more massive company than it is right now. Um, and, and we'll see if, if I'm right with my now 70% of what I owned uh, 10 days ago or something like that. Yeah, there you go. And I, I did appreciate that post and how open that was and being like, I'm still owning some, but I'm divesting of some as well. Yeah. I, I, lo- I loved the transparency there. And of course, I was interested just from uh, someone who's involved in as much real estate as I am worth a couple million, about a million of our net worth is in real estate. About 600,000 of it is in stocks. Um. I can't imagine taking my stock money and putting it in realty income or putting it in Airbnb or doubling down into some other REITs or things that, you know, I just, I can't personally do it. Um, But if I wasn't a host, it, it, it it might change things because it, it is so dominant. I mean, it's, it's the Kleenex thing, right? You, I, you, oh, are you going to Airbnb that unit? Right. Like Lauren, you got a new place. You're going to Airbnb it or you're going to rent it out. That's the question, yeah. right? It's like the Kleenex and the Band-Aid and the 
well, it didn't really work for Xerox or TiVo, but you know, <laughs> like it's kind of become that like a verb, like this, for sure. it's like, everybody knows what that means. Well, nobody, not a lot of people know it means airbed and breakfast. Cause that's how it was supposed to start. But you know, people are using this as a verb. So yeah, anyways, yeah, sure. I just had to ask about that. So if anyone listening has been like, I want to learn more about stocks, where should they go? Yeah. So um, stockmarketnerd.com is where you can find the newsletter. Uh, I am on Twitter at the same handle. That is Twitter is um, just to be honest, very 30,000 foot view surface level. Um, Yeah. And and, and the newsletter gives me the freedom to be much more long form and and to to go a little more crazy on details. But uh, yeah, um, for earnings coverage this this season or for for anything like that, uh, high profile companies, growth value, I will be covering them. Um, so if you are a fellow nerd like I am or uh, or or maybe a more normal person just interested in stocks, because that's okay too, um, then that that's where you can that's where you can find me. I'm not a stock market nerd, Brad. That's I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> we can still be friends. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. Well, you guys can follow me on Twitter at adulting is easy or Instagram at adulting is easy real. I started a YouTube channel as well. This video nice. will be there. You can see, let's see, let's see. Brad has, do you have a stock market nerd shirt on too? Yeah. You got I a do. Hoodie on. Yeah. Yeah. Rep- You're in Florida with a hoodie on. Okay. I know. And I, you've got the stock market nerd in the background. That was yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I had to, I had to go all out. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, I have adulting is easy on. Nice. There we, go. Have, we have to support if, if we don't support our own brands who's going to support our brands <laughs> so true so true uh if you guys like this episode you'll also like episode 90 which is stock market history with brian for roldy i can also tell you that you may like also like episode 149 which is mark dividend seeker we talked a lot about the stock market and your portfolios there thanks again for listening everybody hopefully brad and i have made adulting a little easier for you 